Number one, they want to feel better about themselves. Number two, they want to have others admire them more or feel like they look better in the eyes of others. And number three, they want financial security. That's what's driving a lot of people to read books about habits, enroll in courses, focus on self-improvement and optimization. This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, I look at fascinating, sometimes even controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers. And together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic, our behavior optimization projects, personal development projects, habit change projects, or any of the self-help initiatives a lot of people are embarking on nowadays, actually helping them. Now, this may feel like a weird topic to explore, especially in a time where we've all been taught to worship at the altar of quote-unquote growth mindset, where a particular message has been made super clear that personal growth is the ultimate good. Now, I don't know if your social media feed is like mine, but if it is, it's full of people talking about how many books they're reading and how fast they're reading them. It's full of, look at the course I just attended, or the ones I've signed up to attend. It's full of quotes from people's favorite celebrity educators, and always the hashtag, never stop learning. But over the years, I've wondered about this self-improvement fixation. Now, don't get me wrong, I've done lots of it myself. And frankly, I have been very successful selling education and personal development materials to health and fitness professionals. Yet, at the same time, I've wondered how we've gotten to the place where a lot of people measure their lives against the yardstick of information consumed, and whether that's a productive metric for a human life. So that's what we're going to explore in this series, talking with behavior change experts like Dr. B.J. Fogg of Stanford, growth mindset experts like Dr. Casey Joe Orvidus, happiness experts like Dr. Jillian Mandich, adult education experts like Dr. Chad Hogan, and even a therapist of 50 years, Bruce Tift, who integrates Buddhist ideas with modern psychotherapy techniques. The goal here, for me, was to examine deeply some of the ways that humans are trying to improve the quality of their lives and to tease out which practices are more likely to help and which practices could be doing more harm than good. So, let's get started. In 2012, Charles Duhigg, an American journalist and nonfiction writer, published a book called The Power of Habit, exploring the science behind habit formation. His book went on to become a New York Times, Amazon, and USA Today bestseller, selling over 2 million copies worldwide. Not only that, according to Dr. B.J. Fogg, behavior scientist at Stanford University, The power of habit really helped reframe the idea of habits in a more positive way. When I was working with the Weight Watchers, one of the key things was habits. They decided to call that routines. And when I followed up with them, and and they're like, BJ, we think habits is a negative word. So we're going to use the word routines in our program. So that, for me, is something I remember distinctly. And at the time, I didn't disagree with them. Since then, Power of Habit came out. And so I will give 
Duhigg's book, Power of Habit, credit for taking habit from a somewhat negatively valenced word like bad habits and you know, habits you want to get rid of to something that's more positive. Since then, two more books have brought the idea of habits to the top of everyone's mind. Dr. Fogg's own New York Times bestseller, Tiny Habits, and James Clear's Runaway Success, also a New York Times bestseller of more than two million copies, Atomic Habits. I started teaching Tiny Habits in 2011. James Clear took my Tiny Habits course in 2000, I think it was 13, and got interested in habits. He emailed me, I'm very excited about it. And he's been terrific at blogging and publicizing aspects around habits. But I remain curious about what could motivate millions and millions of people to buy books like The Power of Habit, Tiny Habits, and Atomic Habits. I mean, just those three books alone have sold over 5 million copies. Folks, that's a remarkable number. And I'm not even counting the sales of dozens of other habit books that have come out in the last decade. So I keep wondering, what are people looking for when they read a habits book or start a habits project? Number one, they want to feel better about themselves. Number two, they want to have others admire them more or feel like they look better in the eyes of others. And number three, they want financial security. That's what's driving a lot of people to read books about habits, enroll in courses, focus on self-improvement and optimization. In my Stanford lab, this was about two years ago, we did research to understand what are the aspirations people have. In other words, what is it that they want to achieve? The trends were pretty clear. Financial security was way up there. There were things that would certainly relate for people feeling less guilty about how they ate or how they spent their time, procrastination, or where they were in their life and their career. And then there are certainly things like uh, that were really more other people, like they want to look good to others. But of course we do. That's how we're wired. Now, in that research on the aspirations, there were some surprises. One of the items that ranked very high, and this was bimodal. It didn't rank high with everybody, but it was just nine and, ranked nine and ten from, was I want to help my child succeed in the real world. Bam, huge. And then once we saw that, we we're like, of course, of course parents want that. But not everybody does because not everybody is a parent. When you look at what people are trying to achieve, it really boils down to kind of basic, hardwired, biological, evolutionary kinds of things. You know, they want to look at others. They want to have security. And then Maybe social media has turned up the volume on people's self-consciousness that they're not achieving enough or they feel like they're not achieving enough or they're not living up to what they think others are doing (laughs) as portrayed through social media. Now, there's a lot to unpack here for sure. For example, I wonder if people's intuitions about the kinds of habits to work on or the kinds of personal development projects to engage in are any good in the first place. In other words, will these projects map to the kinds of success they say they're looking for, whether it's financial success, self-confidence, or looking better in the eyes of others? Or are they just making busy work for themselves, doing a bunch of things they think lead to happiness or success or whatever they're chasing when those things are unlikely to produce the desired result? 
Even more, I wonder if the kinds of things Dr. Fogg's research drew out, like achieving financial success or being admired, will reliably lead to the kind of life that will be fulfilling or that people will feel proud of. And of course, I also wonder if Dr. Fogg's last point, that media exposure may lead to new levels of insecurity, unseen in human history, and that's why we're seeing so much motivation to quote-unquote change, and whether that's the kind of thing we want as the animating spirit behind our personal development projects. Yeah, it's a lot of questions, and we'll get to them as this series unfolds. For now, though, while we're talking about habits, I'd like to spend some time digging into them a little deeper. The landscape is a mess, and the vocabulary is not well-defined. And one of the problems we have is habit is, I mean, the way Stephen Covey uses the word habit is different than the way I use it. He's, he's talking about general principles and general guidelines. When I talk about habits, I'm talking about a specific behavior that's done quite automatically without thinking. So there's ambiguity in the word habit, but the way I frame it up is you have, and if I could draw this picture, there's a big circle and that circle represents behaviors, all behaviors. Within that circle, you have a subset of habits. Those are behaviors you do automatically. Now, there's other subsets like one-time actions or actually stopping behaviors. Now, I've mapped out 15 ways behaviors can change in my behavior grid, which is something I've published academically, and people can find it at behaviorgrid.org. So there's actually 15 ways behaviors can change. Some of those relate to habits. Some of those relate to temporary behaviors. Some of those relate to one-time actions. But the easiest way to think about it is the broad category is behavior, and one of the subset is behaviors that are automatic, and we call those habits. So for a quick summary, habits are behaviors that are automatic. We do them without much thought, almost as if we're on autopilot. Okay, easy enough. But why focus so much on them versus other kinds of behaviors? So from a percentage basis, I believe what has been determined is that about 40 to 50% of our actions throughout the day are habitual. This is Dr. Casey Joe Orvidas, an expert in mindset and behavior change, having studied at the renowned Mindset Lab at North Carolina State University. You have this thing that reminds you of it. You make some interpretation of the meaning behind it, and then you pursue that action that comes after it. Of course, we're not having this conscious process. That's just the way it goes, because habits are so habitual and relatively unconscious. Habits are awesome because of that because they do just kind of happen. It doesn't require tons of cognitive effort. So if we can create a habit of going to the gym, drinking enough water, getting enough protein, eating so many servings of vegetables every day, like these are all habits that I have now. Of course, it took time, but it really doesn't require a lot out of me in order to get these done. You know, it's just kind of like something that I do because it's become so habitual in my life. So this is the argument for why habits are so important. They may make up a significant part of our daily actions, and if we can somehow encode quote-unquote good habits, or maybe we'll call them desired habits, into our days, then we can, without paying a lot of attention or using a lot of willpower, sort of autopilot ourselves to a good life. But here's an important distinction. Routines, habits, and rituals are all quite different. 
So like a ritual, for example, if you have some part of your morning routine, like you're actually very present and very aware of what's going on in those things. So even though you do it every day, it's not necessarily like a habit either. Let's say the sink in your bathroom is broken and you go to the bathroom, you go to wash your hands and you know it's broken, but you keep trying to turn it on every single time you go in there. That's a habit. Would it be great if we could do something like that for going to the gym? You know, but we can't because you have to be aware consciously that you're packing your bag and getting in the car and things like that. So it's more or less like a routine at that point. First is drinking water because you're just drinking it without even realizing how much you're drinking. So habits are awesome because yes, they don't require a ton of cognitive effort. And it links into this idea of like self-control. If we have good, healthy habits in place to fall back on in those times where maybe we don't have the cognitive effort to give then you're safe, you know, just you get to fall back on the things that are healthy and good for you. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think so hard, put so much self-control, willpower, whatever you want to call it forward, because you have those healthy habits in place. And this relationship between self-control and habits or rituals or routines, whatever you want to call them, it's important. 1500 people were asked what the biggest barrier to their health and fitness goals were. And 75% of them said it was self-control or willpower. I bring that up because that's a big way around that issue. Because if we have the habits there, you don't have to exercise the self-control in the first place. And what we know from more recent research on self-control is that it's not necessarily that there are people out there that are good at self-control and people that are bad at it. The people who are good at self-control or self-reported that they're good at self-control are the ones who are having to exert self-control less often. And why are they doing that? Likely because they have the right habits in place. Okay, I'm going to take a little break here so I can talk about one of our sponsors, Precision Nutrition. You might say this episode is right in their wheelhouse because Precision Nutrition is the health and fitness industry's leader in behavior change coaching. So if today's podcast makes you want to learn more, you've got to check out their programs. Using the Precision Nutrition method, which has been proven with over 100,000 clients, they teach fitness professionals, health coaches, dietitians, doctors, nurses, manual therapists, how to help anyone make healthy behaviors automatic. In fact, the Precision Nutrition Level 1 certification is the world's number one rated nutrition coaching certification program. And its secret sauce is the art and science of behavior change. But maybe you're just looking to improve your own behaviors so that you can start to eat healthier, move more, and feel better. Well, good news, the Precision Nutrition Coaching Program can help you with that too. Want to learn more about either Precision Nutrition Coaching or the Precision Nutrition Certification? Then head over to www.precisionnutrition.com forward slash JB. My initials for access to free courses you can start today and a nice discount on their paid programs. Again, that's www.precisionnutrition.com forward slash JB. When thinking about this big area of behavior, which includes habits, routines, and rituals, which includes one-time actions, short-term behaviors, long-term behaviors, and more, Dr. Fogg has published a lot on the kinds of things that lead to the adoption of new behaviors or the changing of current ones. I call my work behavior design. It's all about new models to understand behavior, new methods for helping people change for good. And the cornerstone model is the FOG behavior model. 
which is behavior happens when motivation, ability, and prompt come together at the same moment. Now, there's other models in behavior design. There's a choice model. There's an engagement model. There's a first step model and so on. But they all build on that fundamental model of what comprises behavior. And every behavior, whether it's a habit, a one-time behavior, a stopping behavior, they all have all of them. It's about motivation, ability, and prompt. And so once that's clear, then you can create accurate models for how choices work, how engagement works, how first steps work, and so on. So there's a set of models, which are a way to think clearly about human behavior. And it turns out human behavior is simpler to understand than most think. I mean, it really boils down to those three components or permutations of those. Dr. Fogg adds two important, uh, what he calls maxims. Most of us helping others change, we are interested in lasting change, long-term change. And there are two principles that are key. And I call them maxims. And so if you're designing for lasting change in yourself or for others, there are two things you got to do. And I would pit these two sentences against all the other theories and models and approaches. Two sentences. Number one, help people do what they already want to do. And number two, help people feel successful. And those two statements characterize, as far as I can tell, every product or program that has helped people make lasting change. Every time somebody creates a habit for themselves or helps somebody else create a habit that has lasted, it does those two things. It helps people do what they already want to do. It helps people feel successful. Now, you know, we're talking about the behavior change type that's lasting change. Not all behavior types are about lasting change. But if you're looking at engagement or lasting change or habits that endure, those are the two drivers. So if we have this person who wants to get healthier, then say, well, what do they already want to do that will help them get healthier? And you identify what they already want to do, maybe physical activity or the kind of snacks they already want that are going to lead to better health and happiness. And you help them do that. And then as they make the changes, help them feel successful. And that feeling of success is what helps wire in habits. And it also helps keep people motivated when they feel successful. With ideas around habits and behavior change, having a moment right now, and Dr. Fogg's work at the center of it, I wondered how he felt about this area getting so much attention, and if there are any drawbacks. I'm really glad that people care about it and talk about it, that's for sure. I am frustrated that the old traditions, the old myths around how to change your behavior, how to create habits, keep getting perpetuated. And it's by people who are well-intentioned, and they just assume that things work that don't work very well. And they assume things are required to change your behavior that are not. You don't have to set a goal to change your behavior. We, we, we form habits all the time and change your behavior all the time without explicitly setting a goal. You don't have to track what you're doing to change your behavior. We create habits and change behavior all the time without formally tracking it. You don't have to make a public commitment. So there's a whole bunch of things that get pushed on people. And people think, oh, I have to do it this way or it won't work. And that's unfortunate because it misleads people and it creates quite a hurdle for people. And because it seems so daunting and because those seem to be requirements, people 
may procrastinate or delay even attempting to change because, oh, I'm not ready. I don't have the wherewithal. I'm not going to be able to live up to whatever goal I set. And that's too bad because creating habits and changing your behavior more broadly can be easier than most people think. And by perpetuating the old notions of behavior change, we are basically setting the bar way too high and it doesn't have to be that high. And so that's part of my work is my mission is to help people that, yeah, you can change more easily than you think. It's not that hard. You don't have to be perfect along the way. There's all these myths you can ignore. And what you need to do is help yourself do what you already want to do and help yourself feel successful. Dr. Fogg's ideas certainly resonate with me and the experiences I've had in coaching. But something Dr. Orvidus said also really stuck with me. At the end of the day, if you don't actually believe that you can change the habit in the first place, it doesn't matter how many of James Clear's books or BJ Fogg's books or whatever that you read, you're going to keep coming up against a wall because this process is never linear, right? It's not going to be a habit overnight. They think the research that we do have on like number of days is closer to 66 days it takes to form a habit. I think the, the range is like 18 to 250 or something like that. Uh, Maybe this is where I should point out that with estimates from 18 days to 250 days, the only thing we can say for sure is that no one really knows how many days it takes to form a habit, because there's probably no such thing. How long it takes is likely based on the type of habit, the context the habit will be adopted into, the person adopting the habit, and much more. With that said, it definitely takes a bunch of days, and... There's going to be some times where you you miss it. You know, you can't check off the day that you did it. If you have sort of a fixed mindset around like, oh, I've tried all of the things. We'll see if this works. It probably won't. I just know I'm not the type of person to like eat healthy and exercise. Like I can't get these habits into my life. If you're doing that, when those little things come up, those little setbacks, those days where you miss it, it's just going to show you more evidence as to why you're not capable, why you can't do it if you're already in that sort of fixed mindset space. And it will just make it that much harder to actually complete and you much less likely to actually be successful with forming that habit. So I can argue that mindset is intertwined into everything, but it really is like none of these things, no matter how clear cut that process is, if you're mindset isn't there. And this is where it does sound woo-woo, but I'm telling you, we have all of the research to support it. If you're not thinking about it correctly, if you're seeing yourself as like the person who's just like not cut out for it, is not meant for it, you've tried all the things. So this is like very like unlikely to work. It's not going to, you know, it's your expectations will become your reality in that case. So how does one improve their mindset at the beginning of a change process? And how do they continue to reinforce a positive mental outlook along the way? So this can be as simple as you having a thought of, I always do this, or I can never do that. Those are fixed mindset thoughts. So paying attention to when that stuff arises, and then now reverse engineering, where did that come from? Why is that there? You know, what evidence do I have for this to be true? Um, Kind of going down like the cognitive behavioral therapy route with that, like evidence for evidence against like figuring out what a true thought might actually be what's a most accurate thought based on that can kind of help lead you towards like more of a growth mindset perspective. And again, the more you do that, the more you strengthen that connection and the easier it gets over time. Some other 
big ones that I like to mention as far as fixed versus growth mindset goes and how to maybe start to pick up on those things are feedback, setbacks, and success. So when you receive feedback from someone, is it your significant other? Is it your boss? Is it um, your friend? How do you respond to that? You know, especially if it's like constructive criticism, do you feel automatically defensive that you need to like defend why you did what you did and that you don't necessarily have room for improvement because you're still correct? Of course, that's sort of like far end of the spectrum, but you could also just feel like personally attacked a little bit, which is also a little bit of like a fixed mindset showing up versus, you know, someone with a growth mindset would see this as information to improve. Setbacks are another big one. You're going to have some setbacks along the way. They're inevitable to some degree. When you have those setbacks, is this for a fixed mindset person, a more just like more evidence against why you are incapable of doing this, you know, just goes to show you're not cut out for it. Or is it evidence that this is just like more information? So next time this arises, I know what to do differently. I can learn from this setback and this experience. That's more of the growth mindset side of things. And then finally, success. And this is more so pertaining to the success of other people and how you respond to that. You know, scrolling through Instagram, you're like, oh, look at all of these amazing bodies and all of these people. Oh, here's this girl from high school. She lost like 50 pounds. How was she able to do that? What is your reaction to those things? Someone with a fixed mindset would see it and start to think like, maybe they'd be immediately very, very jealous. A lot of times that's where your fixed mindset starts to show up. Like, oh, she just like, she doesn't even like, no, she must have something, you know, she's just lucky. She has something that I don't have. Like, I'll never be able to do that because she, you know, she doesn't work the same hours that I do or whatever it may be. Someone with a growth mindset would stop and sure, but still maybe she'd be a little bit jealous, but then would think to herself, okay, but if she was able to do that, there's no reason I can't do that. I wonder what she did. Maybe I should ask her. Maybe she has some different like strategies that I could try for myself. So according to Dr. Orvidus, having the right mindset, a growth mindset, is the cornerstone of any successful change or personal development project. It's where one might begin. Next, according to Dr. Fogg, people need to work on things they already want to do. And while working on those, every day they need to feel successful. Now, while I love these tips and I think they are important tactics, either in a coach's arsenal or as tools for any individual looking to improve the quality of their life, I've long felt they're too granular. Like, I wanted a bigger picture, sort of a meta-theory of transformation. And I found it. Interestingly, not in the field of psychology, but in the field of adult education, in a discipline called transformative or transformation learning. I was going through a, a really major personal transformation, kind of losing my religion, losing my political beliefs, just questioning everything. Something that's not too uncommon in the early 30s. This is Dr. Chad Hogan, a professor of educational leadership, policy, and human development at North Carolina State University. He's a co-editor at the Journal of Transformative Education, and his research looks at the kinds of experiences that dramatically affect how people see themselves and the world around them. I was at a course at NC State. I was introduced to transformative learning theory. And of course, for me, the, the, the thought that somebody was actually putting words to things that I had experienced was super powerful. Like, I think when you go through this major stuff, you feel like you're odd. You're alone. Like, you know, am I just weird? 
And then when you, you find out other people have been through it, and then especially enough to talk about it and try to theorize around it, you're like, oh, okay, so other people have been here. And, and I, was, I was just hugely, I found myself more interested in this notion of, of um, how people change, not just the mechanism of how they change, but what does it mean to change? For most of my career, when trying to understand how to help clients make meaningful changes in their lives, whether that was through nutrition and exercise early in my career, or through time and energy management and professional strategy later in my career, I looked to areas like behavioral science, neuroscience, change psychology, and more. It wasn't until much later that I was also introduced to ideas that I wish I'd had access to all along. Ideas like Dr. Hogan's, ideas around transformative learning. My dissertation was with a group of breast cancer survivors who said that the the experience, although difficult, had changed their life in dramatic ways for the better. So I, I was looking at that. Since joining academia, I've done work around military veterans transitioning back to higher education. I did a little bit of work with violent extremism and, and how does that happen? What does that look like? You know, how do people become radicalized? I recently put out a book on historically underserved community college students. Uh, if you look at completion rates, um, who completes a four-year degree of people that start at the community college, income and race uh, play a big part in that. And so I find that intriguing and, and it's some, an area that I want to help with. In my current work, I'm doing a lot with migration. The learning needs of, of migrants as, they, as they're trying to adapt to a new society, but probably more importantly, the learning needs of society as we live in an increasingly mobile mobile world. I think the driving interest is, is literally that. It's trying to understand, like, what does it mean to be different? In academic parlance, transformative learning is the process of expanding our consciousness through two things. First, through transforming our worldview. Second, through developing new capabilities of the self. When we transform, according to transformation learning scholars, three major things happen. First, we change our understanding of self. Next, we revise our belief systems. And finally, we change our lifestyle to match. The first in-depth study in this area was done in the 1970s by Columbia University professor Dr. Jack Misero. And we'll dig a little deeper into Dr. Misero's work because it's worth exploring in the next part of this series, where we'll talk more about transformation learning, its interesting origins as a field, and what we can take from it as we consider change projects of our own or we help others with change. For now, though, this is where we'll end part one of this three-part series. In part one, which you just listened to, we covered how, maybe surprisingly, academic ideas around habit change and personal development have become so widespread in popular publishing. We discussed why that is, and how we may be able to leverage some of these insights in our own lives. We also talked about how the field of adult education has its own insights about the process of personal transformation, some that are different from the field of psychology. In part two, we'll continue discussing transformation learning, looking for insights from a field that hasn't quite enjoyed the popularity of habit and behavior science, but is full of important lessons about human transformation. And finally, in part three, we'll turn a critical eye toward change and personal development projects, examining whether they can do more harm than good. We'll also discuss ways of being in the world that 
aren't centered around obsessive personal development, but still oriented towards happiness and perhaps even more importantly, freedom, while still recognizing the social context in which we all live. Before we end, I want to let you know that the Dr. John Berardi Show is now on YouTube and that we're running a little contest over there with our two sponsors, Precision Nutrition and Changemaker Academy. There are $15,000 in prizes up for grabs, and all you have to do to enter, it's really simple, is to subscribe to our new YouTube channel and take a screenshot of your subscription. Once you have that, email it to us at youtube at drjohnberardishow.com. Make sure you spell it D-R rather than D-O-C-T-O-R, and you're done. Like I said, really simple. From there, just before the release of our next show, we'll randomly select three winners who get to choose from among 15,000 in prizes, including a spot in the Precision Nutrition Level 1 certification, the Precision Nutrition Level 2 certification, or Precision Nutrition Coaching. Winners get to choose which one they want. Winners also get to choose one of the following, a copy of my book, Changemaker, or up to $75 of Precision Nutrition Apparel. And finally, winners also get a spot in Changemaker Academy's new course, The Career Blueprint. Can't wait to find out who wins. Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team, Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show, Martin D'Souza, our producer, Dylan Groff, who edited and sound designed this episode. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>